Have you ever um, thought about the possessions that are really of valuable to people? The things that are really valuable to you? It's odd and surprising if you think about it. So for example, my wedding ring here is very valuable to me. In fact, it's like scary for me to take it off like this up here because I'm afraid I'm going to drop it. But it's not objectively valuable. When we bought our rings, um, we spent a little bit of money on Lindsay's rings. I, I tried to do the like two-month you know, two salary benchmark, which don't get too excited because I was working at Papa John's Pizza at the time, so it still wasn't really <laughs> that much money, but we didn't have really anything left over, and I didn't really care. So we just, I just found the simplest white gold band. I think it was $99. Now, it's 15 years ago, $99, but still, that's not a lot of money. And I don't know what's happened to the price of gold in the last 15 years, but this can't be worth, if you melted this down, objectively, this can't be worth more than $100 or $200. And yet, in preparation for this message, I asked myself, what would somebody have to give me in exchange for this ring? And it's a lot more than that. Um, I, I don't know the exact number, but I think I can say with integrity, I wouldn't trade it for $5,000. Now, yeah. <laughs> one guy's clapping. I mean, there is a limit. I think it's somewhere between five and ten. I don't know where exactly it is, but I know ten is over. If you stocked up $10,000, I think I'd be like, ah, okay, fine. Um, now, I asked my wife when I was preparing this, and I told her $5,000, and she was like, her limit was way lower than $5,000. She, she was like, are you kidding me? We can get another one of those tomorrow on Amazon, like <laughs> delivered next day. Um, but that's the point that I'm trying to make. It is more valuable to me. This ring, I was wearing this ring when we took our, our vacation on our 10-year wedding anniversary. I've been wearing this ring for almost 15 years now. I was wearing this ring when... Um, we went through some really hard times when we didn't know how we were going to pay bills, when we suffered through multiple miscarriages. Um, this ring is the ring that little Lindsay Gorman put onto my finger and promised, the minister led her to say, with this ring, I seal my promise to love you. I have a tan line underneath this ring that is the size and shape of this ring that would probably take years to go away at this point. It's like tattooed on my, on my flesh. And so this ring to me is worth way more than the objective price of the ring or the medal. Think about that, though. That is very strange. If you think about that, that's very odd. Uh, you know, whatever's happening with commodities prices and supply and demand and exchange rates and whatever, most things in the world, you can kind of get a pretty close estimate of some kind of objective or universal value for that item. And yet this ring, to me, it's like a glitch in the matrix. It's irrational, there's no making sense of it, and yet if you put $5,000 on the table in front of me, I'd be like, no, I'm good. I brought another item that's like that. <laughs> this is, and I have to be honest with you, I brought this out of the house with fear and trembling because of how valuable this item is to my son, my four-year-old son. This is Zebby. it is his Snuggly, and... Um, well, first, let me just say there's some data, debate about what Zebby is in my household. Um, the, the faction that my wife leads has argued that he is a donkey. Um, the, the correct faction um, that I lead has put forth that he is actually a zebra. He, 
He's definitely a zebra. Thank you, whoever said that. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but I'm taking my time, so. He has a white and black coat. He has a black muzzle. He has a black mane. He has black ears, and you may not be able to see it from there, but he has these little tiny black stripes around his face. This is a zebra, hence Zebi, the zebra. Again, nothing to do with the message. I just want you to know that I'm correct about this. So, um, Here's the thing about Zebi. Who knows why kids latch on to the particular lovey or snuggly or whatever they latch on to, but Zebi became the chosen one. And when we realized he was, my wife had the very sensible thought of, we should get another one because something might happen to Zebi. So we got online and to our horror discovered that Zebi had been discontinued. You can't get another Zebi. So that's why I say I, I took a real gamble bringing this out of the house. I, like, I felt like I should have this handcuffed to my wrist or something like that. Like, it would not be a good look in our home if I misplaced Zebi or something happened to Zebi. So I started thinking, like, what would I trade Zebi for? And I don't know the exact amount. Um, but I, I can tell you with, like, confidence, if you, you know, brought out a $100 bill, I would laugh at you. I'd be like, stop. Not worth $100. No, no way. No way. It's worth a lot more than $100. Think about this. I think he was 12 bucks new. And he has, he has on different points over the last four years been a biohazard that we had to clean up with bleach. He is now less than worthless. I think if we donated him to the thrift store, he would not make it through their intake filters. I think they would like pick him out with their rubber gloves and be like, oh, no, we don't do baby lovies. Those go in the garbage. He is worthless by any objective standard. And I'm telling you right now, if you offered me a $100 bill for this thing, I'd be like, no way. Now, if you offered me $1,000 for Zebi, um, I might have to have a hard conversation with Rowan later when I got home. So there, there is a limit. But this is like a glitch in the matrix, objectively worthless. And yet, for me, for my son, I wouldn't trade it for $100. How do we make sense of this? Because we all have these things. We do. My mom has a watercolor painting on her bedroom wall that she has had for over 30 years because I gave it to her on Mother's Day in the seventh grade. I painted it. It's hideous. <laughs> but to her, it's, it has some value. And if you think about, like, what would you grab if your place was on fire and you could only grab a few things? And of course, I know you'd get your passport and your birth certificate and your laptop and, and whatever, but take those, like, things aside that are, would make your life really hard not to have them. You know you would go for the handwritten letters, the old photographs, the birth sampler your grandma made, um, that item that isn't valuable that someone gave to you. Because to you, those things are really valuable. Even if you have conmarried your entire place and made it through to step five, you probably held on to a couple of things that have sentimental value to you. And how do we make sense of this? Well, I think that our hearts um, know the truth. Our hearts understand that people are more important than possessions. And that's what these things represent. That's why this wedding ring is valued to me. It represents a relationship. It represents a person. To my son, this represents mom and dad. That's why he takes this with him to grandma and grandpa's house. It represents the security of home, belonging, family, relationships. And if you start thinking through those items that are inexplicably valuable to you, I think you'll realize that well, your heart understands the truth, that people are more valuable than possessions. And yet, we are very conflicted. We're very conflicted. 
We, we only, there's only moments when we see things that way. Most of the time, the shouting advertisements and our own fears and insecurities and concerns convince us that other things are, are way more important, are, are way more valuable. And it may come through fear or, or hopes or whatever money happens to seem to mean to us at the moment, that it might mean the freedom to do what we want or to go where we want or the freedom from fear that bad things would happen or, or um, uh, fun or a sense of peace or connection with other people if we had enough money and all these things that if you just take a half a second and think through logically, you realize crumble like a house of cards. Money can't really do these things for us, but, but we, we think that they can. And so we are deeply conflicted and it is that conflict between what our hearts kind of know is true and what we are so often drawn towards thinking and living like that Jesus was really pushing his finger on when he said this iconic verse in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, talk about a verse that we want to explain away. I mean, I desperately want to explain this away. I mean, I, there's a very real part of me that's like, whatever, yes, I can. No problem. But Jesus says, we are kidding ourselves. Last week, in the second part of this uh, series of messages, Jordan really unpacked this verse and this idea that you cannot have two masters. And if you missed that, I really encourage you to listen to it on the podcast because um, he, he really gets into that, of what, what this means. Um, but this idea, we, we want to explain it away to the point where it makes some people downright mad. This idea that you can't serve both God and money will make some people furious, in particular uh, religious do-gooder type people who, who secretly love money but are, are trying to kind of put on a show of doing the right things. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus first said these words. Look at the verses that come right after verse 13, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees. Now, these are the, um, the religious do-gooders. This is the church-going crowd. These are the people that were like tithing and doing all the right things. That any average citizen would say the Pharisees are, are really upright citizens. They're really good people. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, that is strong language, and I think we ignore it at our own peril. So I want to unpack it. I want to try to make some sense of how is it that Jesus got to this point where he said you can't serve both, and um, God is looking at your hearts and the things that people value very highly are detestable to God. And to do that, I want to go back and I want to look through the first several verses of Luke chapter 16 that lead up to these verses. In the first part of this series of messages, Lawrence took us through this story that Jesus told. Today, I want to go through it again through a slightly different lens. And I want to try to make sense of this phenomenon that we all notice that certain items are valuable to us, irrationally valuable to us, in a way that can only make sense if you kind of get into the heart. Because I think that Jesus is really exposing something true about each of us that leads him to, to state this conclusion that you cannot serve 
um, to masters that has the power to make people who are trying to have it both ways feel a little uncomfortable and, and feel even a little bit angry at the things that Jesus is saying. Now, before we get into that, though, I, a few disclaimers. Um, three. One, we're going to talk about money today. Um, we're going to talk about possessions today, which is a very sensitive uh, topic. And a lot of people, for very good reasons, start to squirm a little bit when anybody in church starts to talk about money. Um, Jordan talked about this last week. Again, listen to the message about how you're justified in feeling that way. I mean, churches have done some horrible stuff with money. Church leaders have, have abusively manipulated and pressured people, um, lied to people, embezzled money, twisted things in order to do horrible, shady things with money. It's very, it makes sense that you would feel a little uncomfortable with any kind of talk about money um, in church. Um, but Jordan also mentioned last week how there are some systems in place at Renaissance where uh, there's some transparency that's in place, there's some checks that are in place that make it so that leaders can't be um, shady with money here. And so, for example, he mentioned that Jordan doesn't see any of our individual giving statements. Um, and he does that because he doesn't want to feel frustrated with anybody when he's talking to you. He also doesn't want to feel fearful around anybody. If you are, like, single-handedly funding half of the church's budget, he doesn't want to have to, like, tiptoe around you, which I personally really appreciate because as a fifth-grade math teacher, um, I roll so deep that people are constantly asking me for money, so I don't want, I don't want Jordan feeling nervous around me, family. Um, I want him to be able to talk directly to me. Um, also completely unrelated to the message. Um, we're, we're doing fine. My school takes very good care of us, but, you know, we've always had to, like, uh, watch our money. I've never had to watch food cost in my life like I do now with three little boys. I come into that dinner table, and I just see, like, dollar signs floating over that table. <laughs> I'm like, you weigh 30 pounds. How can you possibly eat that much? And to complicate things, my sons don't like potatoes, which are the free... <laughs> someone, said, someone in the front row was like, what? Um, that's the free food that I grew up on. They're basically free. Potatoes are dirt. They're, they're dirt <laughs> turned into starch. They're free. And um, you can grow them. In, I've grown potatoes before. They're just dirt turned into a starch. And that's how my family raised up kids. My heritage is Irish, largely Irish. Um, my people... We came to this country because the potato crop failed. We said, oh, there's no potatoes? Well, we need a new country. I mean, we can't live here. This is not going to work for us. So I don't even understand how it's genetically possible for these little boys to not like potatoes, and I'm not 100% how we're going to keep them alive, but we just kind of like throw butter bread at them and hope for the best. Um, that had nothing to do with the message today. That was um, first disclaimer. We're going to talk about money. It's not a dirty subject. It's not something we have to tiptoe around. It's a very important part of life that we all deal with. How many things can I stand up here and say every single person in this room has to deal with this? We all have to deal with this, so we have to talk about it. But that leads me to the second disclaimer. Um, I'm, this is not a giving message. I'm not going to try to talk you into giving to Renaissance Church or to be generous. I'm not going to talk about amounts or percentages. or That's not really what this is about. That's not what Jesus talks about in this passage. So that's not what I'm going to... I could talk about that on a different day. There's nothing wrong with talking about that. That's not what this is about. I'm not going to try to talk you into giving. 
I'm coming from a place today that all of us are generous, and really I think everybody is. I really think almost everybody is. Whether you are like faithful, church-going, and you came to a place where you feel like 10% or more, and, and you're like very disciplined about and very stretching yourself, or you're the kind of person that at Christmas time you give a generous tip to somebody at a restaurant, everybody is generous. What I want to talk about today is that Jesus digs a little bit deeper into what does money mean? What is the true value of things? And not how much you give or whether you give, but what it means and why, what, what the purpose of money and possessions is, what it can possibly accomplish. So that's the second disclaimer. Third um, disclaimer is that um, I want you to know up front, and I want you to have in your mind up front, that Jesus is for you. He's not against you. So Jesus, Jesus is the God, the God of the Bible, who became a human being, took on all of our shortcomings, all of our error, all of our sin, lived the perfect life for us in our place, died the perfect death that he did not deserve in our place, was raised again to eternal life for us, and offers to us for free acceptance, adoption into the family of God. There's no, nothing you can do or not do to make God care about you more or care about you less. God's love for you is firmly established by what he was already willing to give for you. So what that means is when we read passages of Scripture, we have to view it through that lens, the lens of Christ, the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news. That God loves you. That's settled. We're not talking about that. So when Jesus gives us any kind of instruction or says anything, we have to understand that he is for us. He's trying to give us something. And so through that lens, I want to look at what he said, understanding that this is a call from God not to go without, but a call not to miss out. So let's go back to the beginning of this chapter, Luke chapter 16, and I just want to go, quickly go through this story that led to that conclusion. Luke 16, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, his um, students, his apprentices, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So the manager, he knows he's caught. He said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. See, he's not the owner. He doesn't have any possessions. He's managing somebody else's possessions. And his job is being taken away from him. So he has a very like, pressing question of how am I going to survive? He starts to try to think it through. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And then he has this light bulb moment. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. That's an exciting moment for that guy, half. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now let me just pause here to make sure we understand what's happening. I am no expert in white-collar crime, so I don't know what this is called exactly, but this is some kind of fraud. This is not on the up-and-up. This is not like playing by the books. He's doing something immoral, unethical, illegal, something criminal going on here. Um, this would be as if 
a rep from Sally Mae called you, and you heard somebody kind of like whispering on the other end of the voice like he was cupping his headset in his cubicle. Hey, yo. You know how you owe us a lot of money? If I were to cut that in half, could you square up by Friday? <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the benefit of the podcast, because you probably couldn't hear that, somebody in the front row just said hallelujah. And uh, that's how I feel. I feel like if I got that call, yes, I could get that money by Friday. I would call mom, dad, auntie, uncles. I'd start a GoFundMe page. I would take my car title down to the check cashing place. It's too good a deal to pass up. So, the, you know, the first guy, he's like, 450 Absolutely. Right now. I couldn't pass that up. But it, it's like the guy was like, if I, if I cut your bill in half, could you get it to me by Friday? Because after Friday, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get back in the office or not. <laughs> and also, can I sleep on your couch for a few weeks? <laughs> yes, you can. For a few months. Come on in. This is a shady situation. Jesus told some crazy stories, family. I mean, if you've fallen into thinking the Bible is kind of um, sanitized, you've got to start reading the actual Bible. He must have been so interesting to listen to because he spoke about Paris, paradise in ways that would make your breath take away. He, he spoke about judgment in a way that feels like a cold slap in the face. And he, the stories that he told... Whenever you ask yourself, who's the God character, and who am I, and who's the bad guy, and who's the good guy, they're always so interesting. They were irreverent. There's a reason why the religious crowd was so infuriated by this man. So he told stories, for example, about prayer, where he was like, you know what God's like? God is like a crooked judge. Um, he doesn't care about justice, and there's a widow who's trying to get justice, and the crooked judge does not care about her. And he won't do what she's asking for because it's the right thing to do. No, but if she keeps harassing him, eventually just to get her off his back, he will give her what she wants. That doesn't look too good on God. He said, you know about prayer, you know what God's like? He's like a neighbor who's asleep and you need to borrow something and you knock on the gate and he calls down like, go away, I'm in bed, the kids are in bed, I can't, I can't come bring it to you. And he won't get up because you're his neighbor, but if you keep banging and yelling, eventually he'll finally get up just to shut you up. That's what God's like. Now, we can go back and forth about what Jesus really means and what God is really like. What I take comfort in is Jesus understood the way this life feels. And if you've ever prayed, tell me God hasn't felt like that. Whether he really is like that, but tell me God hasn't felt like that. He's definitely felt like that to me. And so when you ask yourself who the God character is and who the good guy is or whatever, look at this story. Obviously, the God character is the owner. And uh, who am I? I'm the dishonest manager. I don't own it. I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my job. I don't own anything in this life. It's all going to be taken away from me. I'm just using it for a little while. I'm the dishonest manager, quite frankly, the dishonest manager. And um, this is where the surprise in the story comes. And I think this is the moment where the Pharisees started to get angry. I think they were cool up till here. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, I, I don't think it's necessarily that he was commending him for being dishonest. I think it was, he was saying like, I got to give it to you, man. That was smart. I was about to fire you. You got me. 
You got me. I think it was like that. He commended the dishonest manager for being shrewd. Now, unlike Jesus' more mysterious teachings, we don't have to guess about what he really means by this one because he tells us explicitly in the next verse. In verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth, the temporary things of this earth, to make friends so that when all this is gone, You, in the same way this manager was welcomed into people's homes, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's my attempt to shorten this up just to make it a little easier for us to remember, is uh, use worldly wealth to gain forever friends. Use things of this world to gain things that last forever. Use things that are temporary to affect things that last forever. And there is an exhilarating promise that follows from Jesus. This is what he promises in verse 10 and 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with, and here it is, true riches? True riches. What could that be? Our faith is so small. The reason we have all this boring imagery of heaven of like, pale blue sky and white puffy clouds and fat little baby angels strumming harps and it's boring and you don't want to go there. The reason we have that is because our sacred imagination is so anemic and flimsy. How could it be that the God who created this world will somehow fail to make the next world even better? See, uh, the Christian worldview is intensely carnal, and I mean that in in the pure sense, not in like the derogatory sense. It is of the body. It is a very material, bodily worldview. The God of the Bible created this universe out of nothing. He is the inventor. He's the one that said into nothing, wine should exist, laughter should exist, butterflies should exist, babies should exist, sex should exist. This is the Christian worldview. And it is the the Christian God, the God of the Bible, who became a man, a flesh and blood, touchable man that you could hug and shake hands with and listen to and work alongside of. And who it is the Christian God who, after he gave his life, was resurrected into a new material body, a glorified body that can do things our bodies can't do, like appear out of thin air and pass through walls and things like this, but a body nonetheless. A body that he used to eat fish and bread on the beach with his disciples after his resurrection. A body that he used to say to Thomas, come and touch, touch the wounds. Put your finger in my side, see that it is really me. A touchable body that could eat food. And it is the Christian worldview that paints pictures and revelations of a physical, material heaven. A new world is the Christian idea of heaven. A recreated material universe. And the imagery is of rivers flowing and trees that bear fruit and leaves for the healing of the nations and tears being wiped away from people's eyes. A a carnal, material worldview. How could the God that invented the beautiful beaches of this world fail to make the next world even better? I don't think that our, um, our, our view of true riches... Our low view of true riches comes because we overestimate the value of money and earthly things. I think we vastly underestimate God. 
And when the God who gave the life of his son makes promises like nobody has even imagined what I have in store for those who love me. It is our, our weak faith and our anemic sacred imagination that fails to take him at his word and fails to believe and imagine what that really might be. So true riches, what could they be? Well, of course, there's the next life, but I, I actually think we get more glimpses into it in this life than we realize. And I think in a room full of adults like this, more of us know what he's talking about than we think we do typically. We've all had those moments in life when time seemed to stop and you kind of got a glimpse of what really matters. Sometimes it comes through gratitude. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you felt truly grateful, not when you tried to make yourself grateful, like count your blessings, but where it just welled up out of nowhere and you felt grateful. I had a moment like that with my, my son. I, I've talked before about um, how my wife and I suffered through a number of miscarriages before we had our kids. After the third miscarriage, we had a conversation and discovered that we were both feeling willing to go through it two more times. We both said we could do this two more times. Well, the fourth pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy and life-threatening to Lindsay, and I tapped out. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not willing to do it again. Lindsay had more faith than I did. She wanted to try that fifth time. And God kind of came into my life through some circumstances and softened me up a little bit, and we decided that I was game. We'll try one more time. Well, that fifth time was my son, Rowan, the firstborn son. And I remember a moment uh, in the early summer sunshine, sitting in an armchair with Rowan in my lap, and I was giving him a bottle, and I had my phone on the arm of the chair playing Mumford and Sons. <laughs> and I will wait, I will wait for you. I will wait, I will... And I, it is not an exaggeration to say that I became overwhelmed with emotion. Speechless, transported, out of time with gratitude. And if you've ever had a moment like that, it's a moment you can kind of take to the bank. It's sort of true riches. It can never be taken away from you. A moment like that has the power to carry you through some dark times. There's like a real riches going on there. And they don't only just come through gratitude. Sometimes it comes through beauty. Some of you have had a moment looking at a sunset or, or listening to music, maybe even in, in the worship set. You had a moment when it welled up. Sometimes it comes through like the way a piece of trash goes across the sidewalk in an early morning walk. You're just struck with the beauty of the complexity of this, this life. And it wells up. And, and you get a little glimpse of time slows down, it's true riches. If you've ever felt a sense of purpose, if you've ever um, had a, the feeling that God used you to do something, that you made a difference in somebody else's life, that you did that thing that is core to what you were here on earth to do and you lost track of time, those are bankable moments. When you make a difference in somebody's life, nobody can ever take that away from you. You can lose everything else. All worldly wealth can be taken away from you, but you can never lose that you did something to benefit somebody else. You carry that with you for the rest of your life and into eternity. Sometimes it comes through a sense of belonging, whether it's through your family or your, your church family or your found family. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I think it's safe to say if I pass the microphone around, I would hear a lot of stories about times when you just... The only way you could describe it is you felt the presence of the Lord. You felt the Lord draw close. Sometimes it's dramatic. Um, sometimes it's just very run-of-the-mill. It's just you felt it. That's all you could say. I felt it. God was close. And those moments, you don't forget those moments. 
It's like eternity punches through into time. It's a glimpse into true riches. Unfortunately, they don't last. Um, the, we're, we're not eternal right now. We're temporal, and so the moments don't last. My firstborn son, I had another experience with him a couple days ago. Where I was tucking him into bed, and he reached up his little hands and put his hands on my cheeks and said, Daddy. And I said, Yes, son. And he said, You're probably going to die pretty soon. <laughs> And I said, thank you. I could see you're real broke up about it, son. <laughs> he was like smiling when he said it. The moments don't last. You can't, hold on. you can't hold on to it. We get a glimpse into true riches, but it takes some degree of imagination, holy imagination, to see things as they really are. The way the Bible says it is you have to see with the eyes of faith. Faith is hope in things unseen not hope in the things that we can see. So you, you have to exercise some spiritual discipline to see things as they are. But I hope that we will. Because whatever the true riches are, I, I feel like when we see them as they are, we would beg God to trade anything that came to our hands in this life to have them. I, I had an experience teaching, um, I, uh, 10 years ago I was teaching at a school not far from here, and at the time, silly bands were really popular with the students. I don't know if you guys remember those. Who knows why certain things become a fad, whether it's fidget spinners or whatever it is. But 10 years ago with silly bands, they're little colorful rubber bands and shapes of animals and dinosaurs and stuff. And the kids were just crazy for them, which was awesome for teachers because it was a really cheap incentive. You could get like 12 for a dollar. And they loved them. And they took on this actual value in the kid economy. Like, it, they were fun in and of themselves, but they were also tradable. You could trade them for goods and services. You could trade them for like a pencil with another kid and they would actually give you a pencil for a silly band. They had real value. So I had this moment where I was trying to tidy up my desk at the end of the year and I had a stack of index cards that I wanted to bundle and I couldn't find a rubber band. And there's a couple boys nearby. And I, I said, hey, can one of you guys give me a silly band so I can wrap it around these index cards? And you know, they looked at me real skeptically. And the more entrepreneurial one among them was like, what are you going to give for it? And I had already decided what I was going to do, but I, I didn't tell them I lied. I said, oh, what you will get is the satisfaction of doing something nice for a teacher who is bent over backwards to help you live up to your full potential in life. That's what you'll get. Something like that. I, don't, I lied. And they thought about it, and so this, this kid like begrudgingly picked out the one that they didn't like. It was like a red one that was shaped. They didn't like the shape. It wasn't like the T-Rex. And he kind of like held it out. Here you go. And I was like, thank you took a dollar out of my wallet, gave it to him. Suddenly, 12 little hands were holding out <laughs> with silly bands, begging me for the chance to trade for that, that dollar, because that was real money came out. Now, now we're not playing anymore. Like, with a dollar, you can get 12 silly bands. You can get soda, chips, all kinds of stuff. A dollar is different from this kid economy silly bands. Don't hear me wrong, though. I am not saying that if you give a little bit to God, he's going to give you a whole lot more back. That's not the gospel. Uh, some, some people teach that. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that dollars are not real riches. And how silly we must look to the angelic beings down here, sweating, fighting, trading, cheating, lying. For silly bands. This will help you understand this other thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. 
And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. This treasure was so valuable that he was excited to secretly sell everything he had to buy that field. I really do think that at the end of time, when people get up their first real glimpse of true riches, it's going to be a lot of people begging God for the chance to go back and trade everything that ever came through their hands to just have one little taste of that. So, how do we hold on to this? I mean, it's, it's temporary. It, it goes away. It's not permanent. How do we keep this? And here's where I want to make a recommendation of a spiritual practice that I think God and His grace will use to help us hold on to this. Now, spiritual practices have no power in and of themselves. Remember that the Pharisees who were so angered by Jesus' teaching were meticulous about tithing everything that came through their hands. So it's not about the practice, it's about your heart. But I think if you come at this with the right heart and you make this switch, I think that God in His grace will help to keep this as a more um, constant reality in your life, what really matters. And here's the switch. It's not to give. It's not to give a certain amount. It's not to give a certain percentage. It's to give in a certain way. And here's what it is. It's to give first, to change your priority. Um, not to, you know, you get some money and not to say like, okay, here's what I'm going to spend. Here's what I'm going to save. Here's what I, I got to do this, this, and this. And maybe I'll be generous with some of it at some point to switch that. And to say, everything that comes through my hands, whether it's your paycheck or extra or whatever, the first thing I'm going to do, my priority, that's what priority means, is how can I make forever friends with this? The first decision I'm going to make, even if it's just a little bit, I'm not talking about amounts, whether it's to Renaissance or someplace else, but that you would do it first. You would say, first I'm going to be generous, then I'll figure out whether I have money to have fun or, or save or whatever. Because I've gotten to a point in my life where I am truly okay, I'm okay if I run out of money before I get to have fun. I don't want that. I want to have fun. But I'm okay. I can live with that. I can even live with running out of money before I get to save. I'm not okay with running out of money before I get to use it to make forever friends. Not any longer. And if I fast forward to the end of my life, hopefully I have a little bit longer than my four-year-old thinks I have, but <laughs> when I fast forward to the end of my life, I'm okay if on my deathbed I feel like you know, I didn't get to quite do all the financial dreams I had with this life. I didn't get to go to that place. I didn't get to buy that thing. I hope I get to do all those things, but I can live with it if I get to the end of my life and I wasn't able to do all those things. But if I get to the end of my life and I feel like, you know, I never, I never used any of this worldly wealth to make forever friends, I'm not okay with that. And my prayer for this message is that everyone who hears it will make that switch, that you would say from now on, it's okay. I'm okay if I don't get to do this, this, and this. I'm no longer okay if I don't get to use worldly wealth to make forever friends. And I do think that bit by bit, you'll start to see true riches for what they really are. I had an experience recently with this. We, my, our third son is 12 weeks old now, so you may not have seen me and Lindsay around very much because one of us would bring the older boys and then we couldn't come the next week or whatever. And to be honest with you, this was a bit of a drag for me to not be able to come to church because I've been following Jesus too long. I'm not in that mindset of like uh, that I have to go to church. I really like coming to church. Um, I not, when I have a reason not to come, I'm not like, ooh, we got an excuse not to go. I'm like, 
bummed. I, I, I'm always encouraged by the teaching that I hear, just the energy in the room, singing songs together. You all watch my kids for me. I don't even understand why people don't want to come and, and, and do this. It doesn't make sense to me. So when I can't come, it was a drag to me. Now, you guys were awesome. Don't hear me wrong. People brought meals over to us and gave us gift cards, and you guys were amazing to us. The connection was there. But I couldn't come and contribute like I, I like to, and I felt it. It was a drag, except for one thing. And maybe this sounds corny, but it actually really mattered to me our automatic withdrawal on the t our tithe that comes out through the credit card system. A lot of months that goes by, and I think about it, but it, it just kind of happens. But this month, I actually felt it. I was like, okay, I, I'm connected. I belong. I did something. I was a part of this thing. Now, if you've been coming around Renaissance for any length of time, you've probably seen somebody consummate their decision to follow Jesus in baptism. And this church does something really cool when that happens. They, they let the person share their own story. Usually it's written down and someone else reads it um, because it's an emotional thing. But you get to hear firsthand how God has come into somebody's life and how their life has changed. And it's really amazing. It's really faith-affirming to hear what God has done in someone's life. And I'll be honest with you, when I, when I hear these stories, even though I'm not the college roommate that prayed for this person and rooted for this person, even though I'm not in their community group answering their questions, even though I'm not one of the pastors that talked them through this decision, I am making my little contribution, and I feel like I'm a part of it. Do you know that Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to a prophet, you get a prophet's reward? And this is a teeny little part. But who plays a big part in what God is doing in somebody's life? Think about that. God, in His grace, has allowed me to take part in what He has done in a new brother or sister to spend eternity with true riches by trading something so small and temporary and flimsy and silly and ultimately worthless as money. True riches, what could they be? I think I have an idea, and I think you do too. <laughs>